This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Don Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, I visit with a world-class illusionist and the choreographer and artistic director of the long-running musical comedy review, Esther's Follies. He shares the impact that music has on his routines and admits to annually recycling his book reports on Houdini as a kid. Ray and his comedy troupe have been making magic and mincemeat out of the news of the day for over 40 years. Coming up, my dialogue with the always amazing Ray Anderson. That spark of electricity a skipping stone that sets you free or captive to a mystery the curse of creativity la 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 hey pat good to see you good to see you too unfortunately nobody can see us on this particular <laughs> audio podcast but that also means we can describe each other however we want um, <laughs> um i'm young and thin Yes, as as I'm, I'm even younger and thinner than you are. <laughs> people are concerned, frankly, at how thin I am at the moment. Many people don't know how amazing Esther's Follies is. It is something that is renowned, and yet, in some ways, it's a secret underground haven of humor and music and magic. And it has lived in Austin, out in the open, on Sixth Street, Red River and Sixth Street. It's hilarious. It's topical. You know, I shouldn't be describing it to you. Um, <laughs> one of the first questions I would have is the risks and rewards of staying in one location for 40 years. I would say that one of the risks is that if you're trying to be famous, have a national following, staying in one place is not necessarily the best way to do that. I mean, the people come to you, and so therefore you're seeing a limited number of people. The reward is the fact that you're working in your own little clubhouse night after night and becoming so comfortable. It's like walking out into my own living room to do a show. I would say that that is the biggest reward, and since I'm a live entertainer kind of guy, not interested in doing television, that sort of thing. That's why I have stayed all these years, because I, I feel like I can get my best performances from working in the same venue over and over and over again. There's also, you know, the creative side of it, where Esther's is very organic and that it just piles on top of itself with great ideas, some not great ideas, but we keep the good ideas, throw out the old ones, and over a period of time, being in the same space and knowing what works and what doesn't work, you can fine-tune that to a degree that you might not be able to do otherwise. Right, and that's one of the things that's so fascinating about the show itself, mechanically, is that it's a, it's a relatively small stage, and yet, mm -hmm. I guess I was mostly fascinated by how tightly the show is choreographed between comedy sketches, musical numbers, and magic. Right. Mm -hmm. Another great advantage of using the same space, not having to reinvent every time you go to a new venue. 
Um, and part of that has to do with your customization. Uh, as a theatrical producer, I see illusions dropping out of the ceiling and so <laughs> forth. So is the property owned by the company or rented for life or how does that work? Right. No, Shannon and Michael, who are the founders of Esther's Folly, and of course, Shannon, who is still in the show and going strong, they own the building. So we're not in, uh, don't have to worry about uh, ever losing the space. Also, Sixth Street being a historical district, there's only so many things you can do to those buildings down there. You can't build a high rise, so we're not in any danger of someone wanting to come in and buy it to make condos or anything like that. So we're very, very lucky in that way. As far as the way the show is set up, in a way, it's set up, and I also direct because I'm a magician, like a magician or a magic show, with things always having a beginning and a middle and an end. I had a dance background in college and danced both ballet and, and jazz, so it was a natural for me to begin choreographing the large musical numbers. And then slowly over time, it just felt right for me to start also directing the show. So little by little, uh, as we progressed, I, I just took over more and more of the duties. Shannon, as I always say, she's the wrangler. She's the one that writes everything down and keeps things moving. She's, she's much more analytical than I am about where we're going and what we need to do. So I get the best part of everything, really. I get to do the fun stuff. One of the things that's unique to Esther's Follies, which I'm sure you've had to talk about at length in other interviews, is the backdrop of the stage is a window that faces 6th Street and there's activity out there. So that must be a blessing and a curse. As a magician and other magicians that hear about this giant window behind us, they think it's a nightmare, but I've always embraced the window. For those that have never been to the show, it's a giant picture window. It's behind the players, and the audience is facing the stage with the windows behind us, and people are walking by on 6th Street, which is sort of like a little mini bourbon street. It's full of bars and uh, hangouts and stuff, and uh, people walk by the window as the show is going on. And then there's also characters that we use that come into the window from outside. So talk about breaking a fourth wall. <laughs> But uh, I've always described the window as, as being probably the most unique thing about our theater. And I've always considered it a blessing. For those that work stage shows and stuff too, there's something else about it that most people might not think about when you're just watching the show. But uh, you know how when you're on stage and you have to bring a character on stage and they have to walk all the way on stage and then they say their lines and they walk all the way off well, what we've done is Esther's is like television in a way with the windows because we can pop a character outside the window very quickly. They can do what they need to do or have a visual sight gag, and then they're out, and there's like no time at all. And uh, comedically, you know, to be able to do it that fast is really something. Uh, so in a way, you know, we've figured out a, a way to do things like they do on TV for quick appearances or little blurps of visuals and things, and then it goes out. So the window, I've never seen it anywhere else. It's the most unique thing really about our show, the thing that people remember the most about the show when they're describing it. Well, it's a great comedic additional element and theatrical element because I know you've popped up cardboard settings and fish swallowing other fish and whatever, whatever you need to do. Yeah, we do whole sketches out there sometimes. <laughs> so all of the actors are outside. And one of my particular sets that I do with the magic, I pick volunteers from the audience 
and one of them actually goes outside and stands in the window outside while I'm doing the the uh, magic trick with another assistant on from the audience on stage. So to take somebody from the audience and take them outside, but the audience still sees them and everything, it's just wonderful <laughs> and unlike yeah, anything is. that anybody else is doing. Yet another reason why I've always stayed exactly where I am. Well, I think it's great. It's also something that when you build a reputation, it becomes a place, it's a pilgrimage for people to see. When I tell right. people from out of town, so we got to come there, we wanna, we've want to. we heard so much about it. Then you, you have sellout crowds and great reactions. And also it's something that the city itself of Austin holds great pride in taking somebody to, even if they don't always yeah. get the inside, yeah. let's say Austin political jokes, they get, it's all so well conceived and performed that it would be like being in a foreign country and people laughing at a joke and you go, well, something must be bad about their mayor. <laughs> Plus, if, if there's something you don't understand, something else is coming along in about two or three minutes that'll work for you just fine. We, even though we do local politics, statewide politics, that sort of a thing, you know, we also cover national topics, that sort of thing. So there's a little something for everyone. It's funny when people try to describe Esther's, they just sort of, well, it's sort of like Saturday Night Live but it has magic and then there's these windows and it's like, then they'll finally just right. give up and they'll just say, well, you're just going to have to go. And I, I think too, that's, that's been a big advantage for us over the years because people do come, you know, Esther's is never advertised ever. It's always been word of mouth and we've been fortunate enough to have sellout crowds for 49 years or 45. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's got so much great energy, though, that it's made itself a great destination for a group activity or a stag party or what, I mean, whatever, you know. It is a weird mix. Our crowds, I mean, boy, I tell you, it is a grab bag. It's funny that that works, though, in a way. Somehow, Esther's is, has the ability for people to understand that it's all just done in fun. So if your side's getting made fun of at one moment, don't worry the other side's going to be getting made fun of in the next. And and funny is funny. Right. Somehow when they walk through the doors at Esther's, they lower their guard, which is rare in this day and age. <laughs> well, for, for somebody who maybe hasn't approached the building on 6th Street or wherever, it begins to dismantle you from the great colorful imagery and the woman diving into the pool. And the, it's an anomaly. The title doesn't say what they're going into. Right. It's got that sort of nod to Esther Williams. Right. We're, we're a marketer's nightmare. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, seriously. You don't know if they're selling pickles or swim caps in there. It looks like you're going inside a pinata. <laughs> right. And it also feels like you're coming out of one when it's over. Yes, right, right. You've been hit over the head with the funny. You mentioned its comparison to Sound Out Live. I think what they're saying when they say that is that you are creating what appears to be a brand new show every week. And I know that there's routines that are so good they stay in for longer, but your staff is writing new content, a new musical parody, a new take on something that would happen nationally. So tell me a little bit about your week, the process for your creative team. Well, first you have to understand that Esther's is ever-changing. It's not like we just stop and do a brand new show each week. It's just like I was talking about how everything else is organic. It's like the show goes, and as we get new material in and we write, 
old material goes out. We have some standards that are always in because those are the things that return visitors come. They want to see again if it's their favorites and they want their friends to see exactly what they saw before that they liked so much. So certainly we do have that in, but we are writing every week and it is not uncommon for something to happen in the news on a Monday and we could easily have an entire musical number about the thing by Thursday. That's how fast we work. So our typical week is Monday is writer's meeting. And what that really is, is more of a table reading because our writers have a tendency to write on their own and then bring in sort of what they have. And that's a smaller group of people, just the writers, Shannon, who sort of is our ringleader. And she comes up with even topics that she might want people to work on, keeps things straight, is actually somebody who writes things down, (laughs) unlike many creative types. And then I'm there helping with the writing and sorting through what probably works or doesn't, that sort of a thing. And then we take that and everybody goes home. It's only about an hour, an hour and a half of this table reading and and then redirecting if the writing needs to kind of go in a different direction or if somebody else comes up with a better idea. And then come back on Tuesday for rehearsal in the afternoon, which is noon to three. Read through it again, assign parts, throw it up on stage, see what works. Wednesday is another rehearsal from noon till three. And then Thursday, Fridays, and Saturday nights are our show nights. So Thursday night, one show, two shows on Friday, and two on Saturday night at 8 and 10. And we always have rehearsal, like an hour rehearsal, before the show on Thursday and before the show on Friday to tighten things up and make them right. One of the things I think is a big advantage for us as opposed to other live shows like ours is that we're not killing ourselves doing eight shows a week, which would be the norm, I think, for most places. We're only doing five and we're sticking those all together Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night, which gives us the opportunity to write and come up with new material during the week. And so Sunday is really our only per se day off, but I wouldn't even call it that because writers are writing and you're looking for material to write on and you're looking at your favorite Sunday shows for politics and that sort of a thing so that you have something to come in with on Monday. It's worked that way for us for all these years, and we've seen no reason to change it. You know, we could make more money, I guess, if we added more shows, but, you know, we're happy with what we're putting out there. Yeah, I think that seven or eight show model a week by touring Broadway shows and stuff is really a effort for the producer or someone to get the maximum out of what would be a equity contract for actors or something. And I think if you had a set show, it's a lot easier to do that because then all you're doing is you're rehearsing for touch-up or that sort of thing. We're talking about creating original content every week. You've got to have time for that to work. Yeah. One of the things I learned from a conductor that toured Broadway shows is that he would get to a new town he wouldn't even have the same musicians. He mm-hmm. would have a core group. He'd have his pianist, and there would be like four or five people to travel with him. But then he had to have the, you know, the best players in town. But he literally on Monday and Tuesday <laughs> had to sort of rebuild his orchestra every town, right. which is one of the giant curses of touring. Sure, and that's just another reason why it's so great to have your own place like this. When I say writers, by the way, All of the writers are a part of our cast. They are also the actors in the show. We have one writer who is not our head writer, Steve Baranowski, wonderful writer, is the only one we've ever had that wasn't also a member of the cast. And Steve's been with us about 10 years. Our musical director, Doug Ewart, 
can put together a tape for you in five minutes sometimes <laughs> when we're, you know, we'll be sitting there talking about something and then Doug will say, oh, I've already got that. Let's sing through it and see how that sounds. Just, it's all shorthand for us because we've been working together for so long. I mean, I've been with the Follies for over 36 years. Uh, of course, Shannon, the founder, has been there forever. And Sean and Ted have been there over 12, 15 years now. Some of us have been together there so long that, that we really talk in shorthand when writing. My favorite kind of act to direct is the one that hits and works with the audience mostly. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care so much what it is, but I will say that when you're able to get something that is so current and speaks exactly to the content, what you're trying to talk about and has a message and you get that up so fast that the audience just freaks out that you even have anything, even a reference about this in the show, much less a whole song. And and it really hits and has the message and delivers our point of view on a, a subject that, that's happening in the news. From the Esther's part of the show, that is my favorite. The magic side's a different thing, but from the Esther's side, no doubt about it. Getting some, something up so quickly that the audience just, you know, their mind explodes that you have this so soon after it happened. Like they may have just watched that on TV that morning and it broke in the news and you've got something on it. Oh man, nothing better than that. And we know what works for our venue and what doesn't work for our venue. We are very self-aware. We know what generally works for our audiences. Now, we get surprised sometimes, but we're pretty good at what we do. <laughs> You're really good at what you do. And I have to say, you know, I'm a guy that sees a lot of theater. First of all, you have a tremendously talented cast. Yes. And as you said, the advantage that they stay a long time. They're offered this showcase and fun, but they also at times have to have other jobs during the day, and which right. most people don't know. No, well, they, they can have another job if they like. And sometimes people, when they're new to the cast, maybe there for a year or two, they might want to have a second job. But we pay enough to, to have everybody have full-time employment through Esther's, yeah. So you are, as a director and as a, a performer, I guess I want your take on what theater is in our community. Like, what's the purpose of that gathering place? Well, I mean, the, the the easy part is that you're wanting to make people laugh, and inherently that's probably why you got into the business in the first place is, uh, you know, you get something out of that too, of course. But the thing with Esther's is we are keenly aware that we're a part of a community that shows love back to us. So we feel like we have a responsibility to our community. And when you're working with political material as well, we take the hard stand on things. <laughs> and, uh, if we see injustice or we give our point of view, and we feel like that is also giving back because we're trying to tell people, look at this, you know, look at the hypocrisy in this maybe, or, but you're doing that through humor, which a lot of times sinks in a little deeper for people. If they, they can see the, uh, the irony in something, then you make them laugh about it. In a way, you're educating them too. Well, I think you are you're creating a dialogue and you're doing it by giving people a sugar pill. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Let me talk to you a little bit about character development because you are yourself at times, but also you have this amazing character, the amazing Frank, which is <laughs> over the top, bigger than life. Like it surprises the audience to see you come out in this other character that is right. so big and so sure. broad. Well, Frank is, he's a parody 
of everything that's bad about magic. You know, he, <laughs> I remember back in the 80s, Sigford and Roy were really big in, in Las Vegas, but there were these other guys that were imitating Siegfried and Roy that never quite made the big room. You know what I mean? You had to go off the strip to kind of see that act. And you felt a little nervous when the Tigers came out because they looked a little malnourished and maybe, you know, the whole thing was, and they're very misogynistic and would be flirting with women in the audience. And they had the giant cod piece sort of look going on, you know, to kind of pad their personality. And, uh, I just thought that that was like the funniest thing. So that that's where Frank comes from originally. Yeah, you know, I wanted to do a parody of what I was seeing in the magic world at that time. And uh, the other thing about it for me is that I've never understood magicians. Why would you take a, a woman and put her <laughs> in a basket and stick swords all in it? Like what what? <laughs> What reason would you have for doing that? You know, I wouldn't want to do that. I love women. Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to say saw women in half and all of this kind of a thing? It, uh, so you you don't see me doing that sort of a thing in the, the show. My other pieces are not really like that because it's not my personality to do something like that. It's like, what's your motivation? You know, going to acting 101. But with Frank, of course he would do these effects. <laughs> oh, I see. So in a way, I'm giving myself permission <laughs> to do all these great illusions that I would never do as myself. But now I can tap into all those things and do it as Frank, but turn it on its head, make it funny and see just how ridiculous it is. So Frank allows me to do that. Now, you know, Frank closes the show. I would never open with Frank and he would never work if I put him anywhere else in the show. The only way he works is that is at the end because the audience has had the opportunity to get to really know me. And I, I always feel like they really do. I don't really play that much of a character on stage. I'm pretty much myself. You know, I have training in, in stand-up and I, I think that's probably where that comes from, but try to be pretty authentic. That way they, the audience knows me and hopefully they like me so that by the time Frank comes out, they forgive me. <laughs> No, that's a really good point. Here's what's interesting. A person like Don Rickles can get away with murder, right? Because yes. he makes fun of everybody equally and himself and his band leader and all of right. this. It's it's almost impossible that if you picked any one of those jokes out and told it at a dinner party that you would be thrown right out of the party. But he knows exactly how to endear them and to get that. You know, it is very, very artful, I think, to play a somewhat of an anti-character. Well, and you've seen the show enough to see that when I'm doing my stand-up portion of the show, I'm hitting people pretty good back and forth, hitting myself back and forth pretty good. But you know, there's that, I, it, it's almost impossible to describe. You just have to hit that, that sweet spot in there where they'll forgive you all because they know it's all in good fun. And that goes back to what I was talking about with Esther's in general. And I think I probably learned that from performing at Esther's that, you know, if you can make your audience relax and realize this is all just for fun, there's no reason to get your panties in a wad over one thing or another. It's just all in, in good fun. And I don't mean it, any of the shit that I say. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, uh, that works. Yeah. It's very evident. It's hard to do. And that's why you see people that steal other people's materials sometimes or something, and they'll take a line or two from somebody else, and they don't understand how to deliver a line like that to where you're not going to get in terrible, terrible trouble. 
<laughs> and so, so that's pretty telling. Right. With that mention, and I, not to be the sheriff of comedy or writing, mm-hmm. but I do. I wonder if you'll speak to the importance of originality versus influence. Meaning, we're all influenced by. I watched a lot of Carol Burnett growing up, and <laughs> right. I just couldn't get enough of those sketches between. Uh, Tim Conway and Harvey Corman, but right, right. the importance of the originality in terms of your troupe, and, and not regarding parody, where you're you would be sending something up. But I will say that anybody who, when they're young, I mean, it depends on where you are in your journey. You know, when I was a young whippersnapper kid coming up, well, I copied people too almost verbatim because I didn't know any better. And in some ways, that's also a way that you can get on stage and you have material. And I have a tendency now as I look back and I see young kids doing this to forgive them for that almost because it's in a way, it's sort of a natural thing. Now, what's going to happen is that if you're good and you're using other people's material, eventually people are going to come around and tell you that that's not right. But they're also taking an interest in you because they see something in you. So they're going to bother to tell you. (laughs) The other guys are going to fall off by the wayside. But if they're telling you this for your own good, then eventually you understand that that is the wrong thing to do. And if you continue to progress and you start using original material and it works, you come to understand that original material is the only way to go. It is so much more satisfying personally, for one thing, as a comedian, Pat, you know, just one joke that you get that lands in your set, that could set you off for a week, man. You could live off of that for a week if it's a really good one, you know, or it's a great transition even or something like that. And if it's original, it's a thousand times better because you thought of it yourself and you can pat yourself on the back for it. Right. There's a great deal of pride in that. And not only that, but finding your own voice, finding a way that you're perspective is something that you can build off of. Right, um, right. I do think that I had a a little bit of a wrinkle in my writing when the internet started to push my jokes out beyond if somebody saw you in a club and took it and mm-hmm. you could say, wait, I was just in the green room with you. You just stole my joke. <laughs> well, now you make a Facebook post and it goes to every comedian on oh, every yeah. cruise ship in America who just goes and selects what they need for the night. Yeah, so right. So I actually, at first, I insecurely just said, screw it. I'm not writing any more jokes on posts. <laughs> I'm going to join the people taking pictures of salads because I don't want to be the head writer of the cruise ship industry. See, I, I look at it very differently that way. It's like I, if I do post anything like that or somebody takes my stuff, I just think, well, I got a million more. <laughs> I'm never going to stop writing. Creativity is a bottomless well, and you just have to be willing to write ahead of people was what I used to think. Well, if they're using that, I've got to write forward. I've got to make one more step forward. Mm-hmm. Well, and the other thing, too, is times are changing, and jokes are changing, and comedy is changing all the time. So... You know, if you're worried about somebody stealing a joke or something and, it, you know, it's getting stale, it's like, well, maybe you're getting stale. Maybe it's time for you to move on and write a new joke. <laughs> well, you know, there's a difference, too, between stealing a joke and stealing a string of consciousness in jokes. You know what I'm saying? I mean, real theft is when people are taking chunks of your act. That's very different than like a single joke. I I could get hung up on thinking, well, if anybody ever sees me, they're going to think I stole that joke when I wrote that joke, but they've seen these other magicians use it or that kind of a thing too. But I I don't spend my time worrying about any of that. I would like to think that when I deliver it and do it right in the right context, that they say, hey, that other guy stole your joke. (laughs) Right. 
Well, speaking uh, creatively, I wonder where you feel the most creative joy. Obviously, performing is a huge joy, but I like working a routine. I've got all of the elements together. I've got the props. I've got an idea for where I want that to go. Man, I am in my zone when I'm working a routine. And mostly, there's two parts of that. There's working that routine before you let an audience see it. And then there's working a routine after the audience sees it, right? And I'm always playing with that line of when you put that up. And and I finally, after all these years, come to the conclusion it's better to put it up sooner rather than later. Because the sweet spot of working something in front of an audience and letting them tell you what works and what doesn't work and really listening to them, it's a dialogue, I think is what makes a routine good uh, if you're really listening. And that to me is probably, besides performing itself, I would say that that is my favorite thing to do. I, I love working a routine and I like polishing it up and, and making it shine. And then once it's there, it's rinse and repeat. Right. <laughs> yeah. You and I over barbecue and other things that we enjoy here in Texas have had conversations about what if, and what do you think of this line? And I'm going to do this. And am I showing this right? Whatever. And that development process creatively to me, what you would call pre-production is one kind of exciting high of not knowing. Right. And then graduation day <laughs> is walking in front of the audience and realizing, oh, all that talk doesn't do me any good right now. It's all hanging out right now. Yeah. I usually find for myself that I overwrite and throw in way too many things into something. And then when I finally do get it in front of an audience, I am revising and cutting back. But boy, isn't it better to have too much than too little so that you're pulling things out instead of having to think of new things to put in, you know, that kind of thing. And of course, you're thinking of new things as well if something just doesn't go your way. But that is like super, super fun. Well, you do have the advantage, again, of having a home base. So right, if it doesn't right. go great or whatever, it's not like the club owner says, you're not coming back tomorrow. Right. right? And there's always going to be another audience tomorrow as well. There's a lot to be said for that. Yeah. And Esther's, it's so colorful and the props are so outrageous. It's great. Just thinking of the wigs and some of the other stuff. So that makes me wonder, because you got a pretty tight backstage with the dressing rooms <laughs> and the props and the illusions. What's the weirdest thing you've ever encountered backstage in the green room or coming on and off stage that maybe wasn't planned? Oh, gosh. Uh... I know it's got to happen all the time, but... With Esther's, backstage is so small, and backstage is also the street. First of all, I've seen everything there is to see outside the window. I can't imagine anything going by that window that I have not seen. And as you know, in my act, that's one of my specialties is making fun of what goes by. Uh, How about this? Tell us a couple of highlights of what you've seen outside the window before we go backstage. Oh, gosh. I was going to try to bring it all together so that it's both on stage and okay. backstage, <laughs> which is the weirdest thing. Crazy Carl, who is a guy who spins flowers on his fingers outside our window and sells flowers. He's sort of a local eccentric who wears a bra and has long hippie hair and a beard. Carl is, uh, he's a very unique person, <laughs> but also has a bit of a temper. And one night this car drove by and said something he didn't like. And he took a can of spray paint and sprayed it into the car as the guys were getting ready to go past the light. Well, rather than them driving on, they all jumped out of the car and one of them had a knife. And so they chased Carl 
through the side door and Carl comes up on stage while I am on stage <laughs> doing my act and this other this guy comes chasing in with a knife and Carl goes off backstage but the guy stops and realizes there's 300 people watching him as he does this and then, and then like freaks out and goes back the way he came as Carl makes his escape and the funniest thing of all about that was that the audience thought it was all part of the act somehow that they just didn't get the joke <laughs> and so that that involves backstage behind the stage, on stage. That's a pretty good one. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It, it, it's a reminiscent of a few people. I don't know if you know that Dick Sean, famous performer, died on stage in oh, the yes. middle of the show, as did a, a magician in uh, Tommy Cooper, died on television in the middle of his routine. And right. oftentimes, if a person's a comic performer, I think in Dick Sean's case, he was playing a part of a hobo or doing something and he was on the stage and he was covered in newspaper and he just didn't get up, you know, oh like, or gosh. something. And so they waited for the longest time to find out. And I wonder if the audience was laughing. I don't know. I, I really, I don't know the history, but I do think that it's really interesting where the line blurs between real life and theater. Oh, yeah. In the cases of some yeah, folks. Yeah. Well, look um, at Chung Ling Su, the famous magician who died doing a bullet catch trick and actually got shot on stage and, and died. Right. So describe for the listener what that bullet catch routine was so they can see how it goes. Right. Kind of uh, he's catching a bullet, supposedly, with a porcelain plate. So he's holding a plate on one side of the stage, and somebody has this gun on the other side of the stage. The bullet has been signed by someone in the audience so that you know it's the same bullet. And they shoot it right at him, and he somehow catches this bullet with the plate without breaking the plate. And it's the same signed bullet, except that one night he actually got shot while doing the effect and died right there on stage. And if my understanding, and I might be wrong, but it, it wasn't the bullet, it was some other piece of hardware that was in the gun or some kind of a thing? Um, uh, no, it, it was a mechanical failure, but it was a, it was a bullet. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. But, but here's the really yeah. magical thing that came of that story was Chung Ling Su was not Chung Ling Su at all. He was an American guy named William Robinson, right? That's exactly right, yeah. So he was dressing uh, in Asian garb and uh, passing himself off as an Asian magician, which can you imagine somebody doing that in this oh. day and age? But he also lived with, he had an Asian wife, and he always wore the Asian garb, and his hairline was shaved somewhat balding with a ponytail and so forth. Right, right. He, he lived it. It's interesting in this day and age, you know, that I'm a poster collector. I collect vintage posters from the heyday of magic, turn of the century, 1900s. And uh, Chung Ling Su posters are absolutely beautiful. But in this day and age, they're not fetching the same price that they used to because of the fact that he was uh, a white man portraying an Asian magician on stage. And also the Magic Castle in the last few years, who has always had Chung Ling Su posters up at the castle, have taken those away. Yeah. Well, there were a few very famous touring Asian magicians of the time that were getting a lot of attention, I think. Right, exactly, yeah. I mean, it's just a different time, of course. But, yeah. but speaking to those vintage posters, because I have a few of them myself, there's something not just about the color, about the design, about the texture of a, a lithograph. Tell me how that speaks to you in terms of the marketing and whatever it is 
What draws your eye into that? For me personally, it is the aesthetic of a poster. It's not necessarily how, you know, I have some posters that are worth a lot of money and probably my favorite poster of all time is not worth very much at all. But I, I just find them absolutely beautiful. They're works of art. It's stone lithography. So what they're doing is they're cutting tablets of stone uh, and etching onto this and then spreading the ink onto the stone and then pressing that onto the paper. And they have a different stone for each color that goes onto the paper, which create these. And it's a lost art. They, they don't make them that way, of course, anywhere. It'd be so cost prohibitive, I can't imagine. And some of these posters were billboard size because back in the day, before you were able to advertise on TV or anything, uh, they would put these giant posters up even on the sides of barns at smaller towns to advertise that they were going to come into town to do their shows. And uh, I have one poster that is, gosh, I guess it's about nine feet high by almost 20 feet wide, which is absolutely spectacular. And the colors are just vivid and incredible. And the artwork and the characters that are inside the, the artwork and the posters are amazing. And they've always spoken to me. But I don't, I'm the kind of collector that just gets the ones that speak to him artistically. The ones that, uh, that I think are beautiful, those are the ones that I get. You know, I'm not, not worried or concerned about trading later or <laughs> that kind of a thing. Well, they are stunning. And the interesting thing about the magic ones, they make a statement. Because oftentimes they have a giant oversized devil or some nymphs flying around their head or a skeleton blowing smoke up their skirt or whatever. Yeah, some of the posters I have have devils that are bigger than I am, like full, yeah. <laughs> like head to toe, giant, <laughs> giant devils. I think if people walk into your house, they might think you're a Satanist rather than a magician when they first look at the posters. So. And mine are everywhere. I had one in my bedroom with eyes that followed you around the room was a little too much, you know. Oh. <laughs> Well, Houdini is over my bed, so he watches over me. And were you a student of Houdini books and Houdini movies and all of that? Um, I was never like a giant Houdini fan. The thing I liked the most about Houdini when I was a kid was I could use the same book report every year because being a young magician, because I, you know, I've been doing magic since I was 10 years old. Invariably, my English teacher would say, you know, Ray, you're into magic. You ought to do a book report on Houdini and never failed every year. <laughs> I just brushed that thing <laughs> off and <laughs> you dog. make it a little better every year and send it on. So Unfortunately, that's my biggest connection to Houdini. You've now broken the cardinal rule of magic, telling your secrets. Yeah, your right, book report right. secrets. <laughs> I, I will tell you a a college moment, and I don't know if I've told this story to somebody else over the years on this podcast or anywhere else. But in college, I was really not great at writing papers, and I was I was so much more into writing comedy monologues that I just I didn't want to read this political science thing and. They give you this blue book where you have to write one question, you have to write one big answer for five or six pages. And this one was about the boundary rights of international waters. It was just, it was dreadful to me. And I didn't even know the first thing. I didn't read the chapter. And I was sitting in the room with everybody else. So I opened the blue book up and I start writing, let's not talk about the boundary line. Let's talk about the fish that start on the American side and swim to the other side and get caught on a hook, you know. And I just wrote this big, outrageous, comical monologue. And I turned it in. Anyway, I didn't think anything about it. I knew I was going to fail. But the next day, this stone-faced professor, he had written... 
the book that we were supposed to be reading. So you couldn't <laughs> fool the dude. And he, he gives me a, whatever a failing grade was at the time. And he goes around and he passes everybody's paperback. And he's holding mine and waving it, like tapping it on his hand. <laughs> And he says, everybody took this seriously, and I'm grateful for you, whatever. But one person thought they would, whatever. And he, here's what he did, his, his fatal mistake. I'm going to have him come up in front, and I'm going to have him read his answer to this question. Oh, I was thrilled. I was like, are you kidding me? I'm going to get a showcase now. And I was reveling in the reading. And that pissed him off, like right in the middle. He goes, that's enough. That is absolutely like they were laughing. And I was like, but I have a little more. No, you're going to wait in the hall until this is over. I mean, I was like, I think I just won the lottery, right? And I never finished oh, man, that. Oh, man. You know, I, I went to college 90 days, same as cash. So I never, <laughs> I never finished that course or that guy or that book. But I remember right. vividly writing that report. Oh, that is hilarious. I would imagine, too, you were a magician like me, that you had a lot of things confiscated that you didn't get back until the end of the year, like rubber chickens oh, anything. and <laughs> decks yeah, of cards. Yeah, rubber, rubber dice. dog poop, whatever, you know. Yeah. I had a, I had an ice cream cone that was latex that looked or like it was melting on the, it was, you know. <laughs> but I used to, here's the, here's the way around any kid listening to this. You bring it to show and tell. Anytime you bring a yo-yo or anything, you bring it on show and tell day because then when they go to take it, you go, that's my, that's here on official show and tell business. Like that was my assignment. <laughs> official show and tell business. <laughs> and then you would get that one back. But if you brought it on an off day, I think one of the more crafty things my friends and I did, there was charms pops. They were kind of a big oversized sucker that were really colorful. And I don't know if they were made with some dense sugar or something, but they were really an amazing sucker. <laughs> and you couldn't buy them individually. They were like at the store. So we'd buy a case of them, and then we would sell them individually, right? Like it was like contraband. <laughs> Are these charms blow pops? Uh, they were not the blow pop yet, but yes, oh, okay. they were the same right. family of company. But Same family of pops. Yes, but yeah. they were kind of the size of a spatula. You know, they were like a good size. Oh, that's sucker. great. So t let's talk about your kiddom, right? Because you said that you were a performer from very young. Well, I grew up in a small Texas town, so it's not like there were other magicians or anything like that around, but I had gotten a magic set for Christmas in the third grade. Not uncommon for a lot of magicians kind of start out that way, but I was just very lucky. I had a real aptitude for it. It came to me very easily, and I would say still does. I, you know, I was just one of those lucky people who found the thing that they were meant to do at a very, very early age. I, I kind of compare it to like some people you see that are maybe gymnasts or something. They just have that natural ability. And I try not to take that for granted. Well, you're also, let me give you some credit here. You're a very good storyteller. And so as a performer, the scenarios in your routines are very, that you can watch them over and over. But one thing that I really connect to when I watch you is that your selection and curation of the music like you seem oh, yes. to have a real yeah. ear for the emotion of what music does. So right, tell me a right. little bit about the what the soundtrack of your life is like in terms well, of... Well, as far as the music goes, it's funny. I don't really listen to the music that you see me use in the show is not the stuff I'm listening to at home. <laughs> I listen to music and specifically sometimes listen to music 
with the idea that I will use that in my show. And so when I find a song that I like, I have a whole file of music that I uh, have that I put in. Sometimes go and listen to that to try to come up with ideas. You know, sometimes the music comes first, and then I try to find an illusion or a trick or an effect that I think would go well with that music just because the music inspires me to do something to it. So I think that that's a sort of a backwards approach in some ways uh, from other people. But when it comes to the music, you know, it has to grab me first and it has to kind of make sense for the type of feeling that I want the routine to give the audience. And music is the number one tool in your toolbox for that. So it's it's imperative that the music fits the trick or illusion that you're doing. And I take that very seriously. You know, I've really, really spent a lot of time to make sure that I pick the right music for that, yeah. Well, it makes the routines really, it moves you emotionally. It drives the narrative. And I guess one of the things is, is that you have a little bit of a hybrid in the Esther show between music that might be pre-taped and cut down to the moment within that to mm-hmm. a live pianist, which is also an amazing thing to watch. And audiences don't understand the power of the punchline and the music and the ending being indicated. Oh, right. Yeah, of course. I'm very fortunate, too. You know, I do seven sets within the confines of our show. I don't know how many routines it varies, but I would say there's maybe 25 to 30 different pieces that go to make up a full show, maybe not quite that many. So I'm maybe a third of the show. The other cool thing is that each time that I come on, I can set up a feeling, a vibe of what this thing's going to be that I might not have if I had my own show, where I have to make the transition from one thing to the next myself. Talking about character, even though I'm playing myself, it's each time I come out, maybe I'm serious Ray, or I'm funny Ray, or I'm romantic Ray. And I get that in my head before I walk on stage, and I'm able to to set that up with the music and the other components that I've put together so that each time that I come out, I'm starting fresh, in my mind anyway. That's a big luxury that I have that you might not have if you had your own show. And it also works the same for the Follies itself because you have some that's piano music and it might be more musical in nature and not just gut buster funny, but clever or ironic. And then you have the big splashy musical numbers that, you know, involves everyone (laughs) and uh, zany and has the wild costumes, that sort of thing. But uh, since each, each piece is usually around three to four minutes in length, except for some of mine are maybe a little longer, but each of the Esther's things also affords them the opportunity opportunity to set up something new every three, four minutes that can be completely different. Originally, when I was a kid, I fell in love with Bette Midler. I saw a live concert show of hers when I was very young. The thing that I took from that that I liked the most about it was that one moment she could be completely bawdy and outrageous and rude and almost to the point of being mean, (laughs) things she sang. And then the next moment she could be singing a ballad and making you cry. And then she could be doing some zany big musical thing with the harlots, which were her backup 
dancers and singers. And that always stuck with me to where I didn't want to just be one person in my show. I always have wanted to play characters, even if it's like a different version of myself in the show. And in the early days at Esther's, I did do different characters more than I do now. I had more than just Frank. You know, I had other characters that I also played. So I was very lucky that I fell in with Esther's because I already sort of wanted to do this type of show. And here it was, you know, albeit it was very crude when I first started. It was really what I was looking for, and it was like-minded people. So I was very, very, very lucky. Uh, well, it's funny. I, this is worth looking up. I don't know that I can quote her exactly, but Bette Midler has the, one of the greatest laughs of all time with Johnny Carson in one of his early send-off shows. It's worth looking up on YouTube because I think she had a German husband or something, and she... Yes, she used yeah, to say, yeah. I like to dress up like Poland and then ask him to occupy me. Uh, invade to, me. Oh, invade, invade me. me. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> it's hilarious. But watching Johnny laugh at it and listening to how long that laugh carries, it's well, just she was fun. one of his favorites by far. And in fact, I guess she was on the next to the last show and sang him a wonderful song. Right. That's the same appearance where she sits up on the desk and she tells sure. that story. And I'm telling you, it just yeah. leveled me. I think if people watched Bette Midler's stage show and then they came and watched me perform, they would see that influence in space. And you think that she really may have been the performer that had the most impact on you? Early on, early on. And I actually had the chance to thank her for it, and she was very gracious about it. So, <laughs> yeah, so, so, I pretty, pretty much uh, aped you <laughs> in a magical way. Right. And were you wearing the same dress as her when you complimented her? <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, you know, Frank, if you think about it, the amazing Frank is in some ways very much like her fish character that she plays, Dolores DeLaga, the Toast of Chicago. It's a parody of lounge singers, and Frank is very much like that. So I think in the early days especially, I, I took a page from Bette Midler's book, no doubt. But I would say that Esther's itself has probably been my biggest influence, and that's through the people that I work with, because we're constantly getting new people in. You've brought me to a really great place where you've mentioned the taking a page from that book where I want to mention to everyone that there is a book a 200 page coffee table book of Esther's Follies that talks about the history and the wonderful routines and the many performers that you have it's it's a 40 year retrospective that's worth a purchase for anybody that wants to get into this business of sketch writing of comedy it's just such a great legacy to Shannon, to you, to all the folks that performed there. Really a very fearless troupe of people. Or people that just didn't know any better. So therefore we did. <laughs> I know, but isn't that what gets us all into this business? Sure. It's the minute you know better <laughs> that you stop trying. Right. I will tell you this. My comparison, I used to talk to my co-writer, Matt Goldman, about when you're a kid and you do belly flops off the diving board, it's hilarious. <laughs> until somebody tells you, doesn't that hurt? At which yes. point from then on, it hurts. You're like, I'm not doing that anymore. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No doubt. Well, do you have anything on your bucket list that is something that you want to do creatively? Yeah, I've always got things. You know, I've always got things in the hopper. So I usually have one on stage that I'm working on. I usually have one in my head that I'm thinking about. And I usually have one being built because illusions, it sometimes takes eight to 10 months to get things uh, together. And uh, I've been fortunate enough to be able to collaborate with Jim Steinmeier on the last 
illusion that I did. And Jim, for those that don't know, is the be-all, end-all creator for Magic Illusions and has created many illusions for Doug Henning, David Copperfield, just about everybody. Also worked for Disney for a number of years. And I respect him very much, and I was able to finally work with him. But unfortunately, we were only performing for a week, uh, and I finally got the trick up, and I was exactly where we were talking about in the sweet spot where I'd finally got it in front of an audience and was starting to work on it when we closed for the pandemic. So I'm very much looking forward (laughs) to getting back to working that illusion (laughs) and to making it right and making it look great. Right. Is there any part of that illusion you could describe to us or what do you call it? It looks like a giant popcorn machine. And again, trying to pick the right kind of music. It's all done to Bossa Nova Baby by Elvis Presley. Sort of the scene of it is a popcorn machine sitting uh, on a boardwalk with a Ferris wheel in the background, sort of an idea. And uh, it's a stylized piece from a bygone era of the of the, around the same time as the music itself. But that's about all I'm going to say. And it involves an 80-pound dog that appears magically. <laughs> oh, nice. If you want some play on music for it coming out, look at Popcorn by Hot Buttered. Oh, yes, of course I know Popcorn. I'm, I'm a child of the 70s. Of course I know Popcorn. You think I haven't used that song when I was a kid? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it seems like it might be somewhere in the files. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Early on in the files, but yes. Right, yeah. right. right up right there with the Scott Joplin stuff. Yeah, and, and me and my shadow, right? Yeah. Yeah. Ray, what a delight to talk to you today. You're a creative inspiration, and I really, if, if people haven't seen you, I would say put it on the wish list to go see Esther's Folly and Ray Anderson. And sp- specifically, when you do the floating girl in the kiddie pool, it's a showstopper. <laughs> Every time I think, what a daring thing to do. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I thank you guys for inviting me today. It was really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're a pro, pal. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, under the leadership of Amanda Rosenberg, with sound editing by the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Marcus Siniskalki, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You're hearing that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now.